Well, good morning, everyone. It's a joy to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, and good to see so many faces out there. I was concerned with the time change that we would be missing a few folks, and so glad to see everyone there. I remember in the days before smartphones that automatically updated the time for you, that inevitably in the spring, a large group of people would show up an hour late for church. And so in case that happens this morning, if people start sneaking in at 1135, just Greet them warmly, move over in the pew, make room for them, uh, and they can join in wherever we are in the sermon at that point. So we are closing our time in Philippians this morning. We started back in January, and we've been working our way slowly through this letter of Paul. We're going to wrap it up today. We're going to be looking at this last passage from chapter 4. So let's pray before we read God's word together this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. And we thank you that through your word, Lord, you speak to us, that you confront us, that you reveal yourself to us, that you speak your word of grace to us. And Lord, we pray this morning that our hearts would be open to you. Lord, that your spirit might fill each one of us up today. And as Yano already prayed, Lord, that your word would go with us as we leave this place this morning, that it would stay with us and continue to speak to us as we seek to live our lives for you. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Our passage today is Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 10 through 23, if you'd like to follow along, and it'll be on the slides as well. Hear with me the word of the Lord. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts, what I desire is, more, uh, is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. Amen. 
So uh, this is the last day that we're going to be looking at Philippians, at least for now, uh, but as, as it is God's word, it, it'll be worth returning to again and again for yourselves to continue to look at it. Uh, our prayer is that it will stick with you uh, beyond just this sermon series. Uh, but here we are at the end of Paul's letter to Philippians, and as we've gone through this book, the theme that we have tried to keep out in front of us the whole time is the idea that to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And that's a statement that comes directly from Paul. He makes it uh, near the beginning of the book in chapter 1, verse 21. As he looks at what's going on in his life, the fact that he is imprisoned because of his ministry, and there's this open question in front of him whether he's going to be released one day from prison or whether he may actually face the death penalty. He might be put to death because of the ministry that he has for the gospel. And Paul makes this bold statement at the end of chapter one, saying, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. If he lives, he gets to continue in this ministry that the Lord has called him to, which is something that he loves and he wants to continue doing. And he wants to see the Philippians again in person, to be able to encourage them in person. But if he dies... If he dies, then he gets to be fully present with the Lord, and that would be to his gain. And so Paul can look and say, whether I live or whether I die, I am the Lord's. And either way, it's going to be okay. This is the lens through which Paul sees life and death because of his trust in Jesus Christ. And this is what we have been considering as well as we've gone through this book together, our life in and through Jesus Christ. That as long as we live, as long as we have breath in our lungs, that Christ's life is meant to form our life. I like the way the guys at the Bible Project said it, which we've quoted in here before, which is that our lives are meant to be lived expressions of Christ's life. As followers of Jesus Christ, our lives are meant to be lived expressions of Christ's life. And I think that's a great way for us to think about it. That somehow, in some way, The way that we live as Christians, both as individuals and and in community together, here as the church, in some way, we are meant to show forth Jesus Christ to the rest of the world and the way that we live. And so before we move on to today's passage, which which has so many great things in it for us to, to hold on to, but it seemed like it would be good to review a little bit, to walk back through all that we have seen already in Philippians. I promise this is not going to be six sermons. We will still get out on time, but we're going to do a quick review of some of the main highlights that we've seen in Philippians up to this point. What Paul has already had to say about this idea of what it means to live is Christ. And so we're going to look at it in three main parts and hit the highlights of each one. So the first part that we want to look at is the centrality of Christ, the centrality of Christ. And then we're going to look at the emphasis on the gospel, and then we're going to look at Paul's instructions for faithful living. So those are the three parts we're going to look at it, the centrality of Christ, the emphasis on the gospel, and instructions for faithful living. So number one, the centrality of Christ. And this is really it for Paul. Everything comes out of this one or or sort of rests under this umbrella. This is the most important, the centrality of Christ to all of life. If you're going to say that to live is Christ, then Christ must be central to that life in every way. 
And so we see the centrality of Christ emphasized by Paul, first and foremost, in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, this this well-known passage where we see Jesus as our Lord and Savior, both crucified and glorified. Jesus became humbly obedient to death on the cross, and now he has been exalted to the highest place, and he now rules over all of creation. He has been given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And to fully know Jesus, we have to know him in both of these ways, both crucified and glorified. This is the whole Christ right there. Either one without the other won't give us the whole picture of who Jesus is. We can have an exalted Lord who was not crucified, and then we would still be in our sins. We would not have been saved yet. Or we can have a sacrificed Jesus who has not been raised and glorified with no real power or authority to forgive our sins and to save us. We need both of these things together, both crucified and glorified. And that's what Paul presents for us in Philippians chapter 2. And so this becomes the central passage of the whole letter and a defining statement of Paul's theology. This is the gospel for Paul, what we see in that passage. The other ways, some of the other ways we see the centrality of Christ in Philippians, the way that Paul presents it, is his statement of confidence about Christ's work in them. I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That's in verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 6. This Christ who has been crucified and glorified is at work in us through his Holy Spirit. And what God starts, he will finish. Paul has complete trust in the fact that God will finish what he has started in us. And Paul even says, this is the only place as Christians that we should put our confidence, that we should have no confidence in ourselves, in the flesh, but all of our confidence should be in Jesus Christ as our Lord. And finally, we see the centrality of Christ in Paul's desire to know Christ above anything else in this life. Again, this is the most important thing for him. As followers of Christ, everything else that we do will come out of our fellowship with him. To know Christ. And then we move to the second part, which is an emphasis on the gospel. And this is something that also is really important for Paul. To see the good news of Jesus Christ go forward into the world so that people might come to saving faith in him. This is a huge emphasis for Paul. And these are some of the different ways we see it in Philippians. We see it in in his thanking of the Philippians for their partnership of the gospel. And we see this in the very beginning, chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Paul says, we have worked hard together in this mission, and he is grateful for them, that they have labored together to spread the gospel. And the second thing is Paul rejoices in the advance of the gospel. We see this in chapter 1 as well. And this statement is remarkable because Paul is talking about the situation that he is in. He has been imprisoned for his ministry, and yet he can still say, I rejoice because I see the gospel being advanced. My situation is for a purpose. God has me here for a purpose. And I see the gospel going forward into the world in spite of my imprisonment. In fact, in ways because of my imprisonment. He sees how God is using it to bring others to faith. And so Paul rejoices in it because the gospel is still advancing. 
And then in the third, the third point on this one is that Paul calls the Philippians to live a life worthy of the gospel. Paul says the gospel of Jesus Christ makes claims on your life. You are not your own, but you have been bought at a price. And so Paul wants the Philippians to be able to say for themselves that to live is Christ. And again, that their lives would reflect this truth. And there are many reasons for calling them to live this way. First and foremost, it honors God. It honors God for them to live lives worthy of the gospel. It brings him glory. But also it's because it is what is best for them. The the rules and the laws and everything God has told them to do are what is good for them as God's people. And if they live this way, in the long run, it will benefit them. And lastly, because it's part of the advance of the gospel. There's a witness piece to how we live our lives. Even as Jesus said, let your light shine before men so that people will see your good deeds and bring glory to your Father in heaven. How we live our lives is a witness. People come to know Jesus Christ through the community of the church. And then the third part of all of this is that we see Paul giving them instructions on faithful living. And while he doesn't say it explicitly, we can read these instructions as practical ways for them to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't have time to go into each one of these points again in great detail. Uh, Hopefully we hit on each one of them uh, as we went through the book. But there's two things that I think are good for us to keep in mind as we look at these different instructions for faithful living. One is this, that we should see these instructions as being for us today as much as they were for the church in Philippi back then. God's word is living and active, and God speaks to us through it still. And so we don't just read this letter to the Philippians and say, well, Paul was telling them what they needed to do. We need to read it and say, well, this is also for us. And the second thing is this, we want to remember That this letter and these instructions are meant for us as individuals, but they're also meant for us as a church. They're meant to characterize who we are as a community. When you read these things, you could say, is this what ICP is like, the International Church of Prague? Do we live according to these instructions? Do these things characterize us as a church? So here they are, and again, we're going to tick through them a little bit uh, quickly because we don't have time to go into them each in depth. But the first one is this, unity. Paul says several times that the church is to be united, that they are to be united together in one spirit. They are to be of one mind. Unity in the church is not a given. We know this. Unity in the church is not a given, and yet it is something that is so important And it's so something that we should uh, look for and hope for and pray for. The second one is this, humility. Humility. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others above or value others above yourselves. And we should have the same mindset as that of Jesus Christ, who humbled himself all the way to death on a cross. This is how we are to live as Christ's followers. Humility. No grumbling or arguing. 
I don't know that we need to go into too much detail about this one, but it's an instruction that he gives. He says, don't grumble. Don't argue with each other. Just don't do it. Enough said. (laughs) Suffering. Suffering. We are called to a willingness to share in Christ's sufferings as his people. And Paul even says that in some way, this is how we come to know Christ, by sharing in his sufferings. He says, I want to know uh, Christ and share in his sufferings so that somehow I might also know his resurrection from the dead. So we are called to be willing to share in Christ's sufferings, whatever that might look like for us. Paul cautions them about the influences in their lives. Who are you following? Who are you listening to? What are you filling your mind with? Are they leading you toward Christ or away from him? Be aware of these things. Use your wisdom and discernment. And the last one is this, joy, joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. We said last week, I will say it again, rejoice. As followers of Christ, we are to be joyful people. Our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit is the source of that joy. We could probably find more instructions, but hopefully this covers the main points that Paul got at in here. And I love the idea of these being things that would characterize us at a church, that people might look and say, look at that church. That church is a church that is united for the gospel. That is a church where people really love each other, where they are in mission together, where they are like-minded. That would be great if people would say that. Or that is a humble church. That is a church that doesn't think too highly of themselves. That's a church that treats other people's needs more important than their own. That's a wonderful thing. Or what if people looked at ICP and they said, and I think they do, but what if people looked at ICP and said, that is a joyful church. That is a joyful church. When I go there, I feel the joy of the Lord when I am with the people in that church. What a beautiful thing for people to say about us. I think we could pray that God would work these qualities into our community here at ICP, that that would be a good thing for us to do because each of these things are gifts of the Holy Spirit. They are God's work in us as a community. So let's join together in praying for those things. And of course, as we look at these instructions, we need to remember God's grace for us, okay? We're not ever going to be all the way there, and we know that. These are not meant to be another law that we hold over ourselves and judge ourselves. Oh, we're not as joyful as we're supposed to be. We're not as united as we're supposed to be. No, 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 no. That's not the point. Well, actually, what Paul is doing is saying, hey, this is the way to freedom in Christ, to live this way. This will be good for you as individuals and as a community, right? And so we can be confident that he who has began a good work in us will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Each one of these qualities, each one of these instructions, Lord, will you work those into us by your Holy Spirit? That's what we want. And so then after all of this, after all of these instructions, after this review of Philippians, we come to today's passage and we end where we began with thanksgiving for their partnership in the gospel. We've come full circle. Paul starts the whole letter by thanking them for their partnership in the gospel, and then he comes to the end here, and again, he thanks them for their partnership in the gospel. We said that this, in some ways, is a thank you note to the Philippians. Paul puts a lot of other stuff in there, but his impetus for writing this letter is because they have sent him a gift while he's in prison. 
to help provide for his needs. And he is thankful for that gift. And so he writes to say, thank you. Thank you for your concern for me. Thank you for partnering with me in the gospel. And I am so thankful for this relationship that we have with each other. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in our passage today. And there are two key verses in this passage, and they're likely ones that many of you are familiar with. I will admit that I uh, had memorized both of these passages growing up separately from each other, having no idea that they came from the same passage and were connected with each other. But the two verses are this, uh, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. Talk about an encouraging verse. I remember when I left for college, uh, and I was one of those kids, I was in that phase of life where anything that, that my mom said or, or told me, I was just automatically opposed to it because I was 18 and I knew better, right? But when I went to college, my mom bought me this little cardboard sign with this verse on it. Uh, it was a little bit different translation, but it said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I put it on my desk uh, so that I would see it as a good reminder to me that Christ was with me. And there were times that I really needed that reminder in those four years as I went through college. And so moms, I would encourage you, your kids are listening, even when it doesn't seem like they are, continue to encourage them in their relationship with the Lord. But also to say that this verse was a good encouragement, a reminder to me of Christ's presence with me as I went through those years even when it didn't always seem like Christ was always with me during that time. It's a great statement about the power that is at work in us through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is alive in us and that we do not go through this life alone. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. And then the second key verse is towards uh, the end of Paul's thanking them. The second verse is chapter four, verse 19. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And Paul is making a powerful statement here about God's faithfulness to his people and his trust that God is going to provide for them. And by looking at these two verses together, it gives us a better understanding of how Paul can make his bold claim in verses 11 and 12. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Friends, I want to know that secret. I want to know that secret. Anybody out there feel like they have found that secret of being content in every, in every situation? No? Okay. If you do, please see me after the service. Uh, I would like to talk with you more. I think contentment is something that is hard for us to come by, at least for a lot of us. That seems to be the case. It always seems to be just out of reach. If I just had a little bit more of this, then I would be content. Or if I just had a little bit nicer that, then I would be content. Lord, just, just a little bit more. And then, then I can be content. I won't ask for anything else after you provide for this one thing. 
A lot of the marketing industry is geared toward the reality that people are not completely content with their lives. Buy our product, and then you will be truly happy and fulfilled. We promise. And it may be true that in some ways their product will improve your life in some way, but it is rare that buying something leads us to being content. Because contentment isn't about just our outward circumstances. It's an inner posture of the heart. And this is not just a 21st century problem, this this being discontent. This is nothing new, of course. And I think we can look at the Ten Commandments to show us this. The Tenth Commandment says this, You shall not covet. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. This commandment is all about discontent. It's about looking at someone else's life and thinking that they've got it better than me and I want what they have. I am not content with my life. If this wasn't a problem that was common to people, then we wouldn't need a commandment to tell us not to do it. If it was our natural tendency to always be honest, we wouldn't need a commandment that says, don't lie. If it was our natural tendency to always honor our father and mother, we would not need a commandment to tell us to honor your father and mother. So if it was not our natural tendency to covet what other people have, then we would not need a commandment that says, do not covet. It is meant to keep us in line, to remind us of all that God has provided us with. And the reality is that if you're coveting something somebody else has, they're probably coveting things that other people have. We need this commandment because it reminds us that this is our tendency, to not be content with our lives. We covet, we envy, we get jealous, and it's born from discontent. God, why did you give me this life? I wish I had a different one, or at least a little bit different one, just a little bit different. There's a great quote uh, that's attributed to John D. Rockefeller, the, the American oil tycoon of the 19th century. He was one of the richest people who ever lived. And when asked, how much money does it take to make a man happy, he replied, just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. Now, whether he actually said this or not, we don't really know, but I think we can, we can appreciate the sentiment that he's putting out there for us. No matter how much you have, there's always a little bit more that you could have as well. If you are looking for contentment in life, it won't be found by having lots of money and lots of things. I do think there are people out there who who are content with their lives, who have found this secret in some ways. There are people who have a lot of material wealth, and some are content, and some are not. And there are people who have very little material wealth, and some are content, and some are not. It has nothing to do with what they have and what they possess. Paul says that there have been times in his life when he has had a lot. And there have been times in his life when he has had very little, when he has been in need. And he has learned the secret of being content regardless 
regardless. So what is the secret for Paul? He says it in chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. It's his fellowship with Christ that allows him to be content no matter the circumstances. It always comes back to Jesus for Paul. Jesus who died for him. Jesus who rose for him. Jesus who sought him out in all of his sin and pulled him out of it and gave him a new life of freedom and joy. And Paul can honestly say that he is content no matter the circumstances because his life is now one where he is filled with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of the risen Christ. And Christ strengthens him in such a way that he is content no matter what happens, no matter what comes his way. And even if he dies, he is content. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, Paul is not saying this to brag on himself or to give the impression that he's figured out something that others can't or haven't. Paul was writing at a time where self-sufficiency was highly regarded. And so he wants to be clear with people. It is not me, but it is Christ in me that allows me to live this way. It is not me, but it is Christ in me that allows me to live this way. Paul's secret of contentment is his fellowship with Christ. And the reason that he's talking about all of this is because he is thanking them for their generous gift to him. But he has a kind of funny way of expressing this. At least it might sound funny to us because he says, thank you for your gift. I didn't need it. (laughs) I don't know if you caught that when we were reading through the verse. Thank you for your gift. I didn't need it. He's basically saying, I really appreciate it, even though I'm doing just fine. But it's, he didn't need it because he has learned to be content no matter what. The point is for him not to downplay their generosity. It's more to say that what he's thankful for isn't the gift itself, but what it demonstrates to him. It shows their concern for him, their, their love for him. It shows their partnership with him in the gospel. This gift is an encouragement to Paul, and it's a reminder to him of all that they have been through together over the years. But more importantly than that, Paul sees this gift as a reflection of the posture of their hearts toward the Lord. He calls their gift an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And when he says that, what he's doing is he's referencing the praise and sacrifices from the Old Testament, the sacrifices that people used to give uh, to God. And in other words, Paul is saying that ultimately your gift is less about your relationship with me and more about your relationship with the Lord. This is their faithful response to show praise and thanksgiving for all that God has done for them in Jesus Christ. It's not being done because they've been commanded to do it, but because they desire to do it, which is always the best way to give. It's a good pattern for us in our own giving to the Lord that we would see it as an act of praise and of thanksgiving, a joyful response to God's grace, that it would be a reflection of our own hearts surrendered to God and a trust in God's provision for us. Verse 419, in response to their giving, Paul says, and my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Jesus Christ. Paul's saying you don't need to be concerned for yourselves, even with having made such a big gift, because God knows what you need, and he will supply it for you. 
Paul is sharing with them the promise of God's faithfulness. He's proclaiming it over them. He has great hope and faith and trust in the living God, the God made known to him in Jesus Christ. And Paul knows that his life is in God's hands and that it is God who has given him all that he has. And he wants others to trust in that promise for themselves too. Friends, God knows what we need even better than we do ourselves. And in fact, our greatest need, the forgiveness of our sins, he has already provided for us once and for all on the cross through his sacrifice of his son for our sake. We can give thanks for that. Philippians closes with with two great statements in verses 20 and 23. There's one of praise to God and one is a prayer for the grace of Jesus Christ to be with us. Paul says this in 4 verse 20, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Praise to our Heavenly Father is always our right response to who He is and what He has done. That's why we gather here each week to worship and praise together because we have a great God who alone is worthy of our praise. And then Paul closes the whole book with a letter. I mean, sorry, the whole letter with a prayer. Paul's great prayer for them is for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to be with them. He says, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. This is Paul's great prayer for all of God's people. So may we all know this grace. May we all know God's great love for us shown through his son, Jesus Christ. Gordon Fee closes his commentary on Philippians saying this, everything in this letter from beginning to end and everywhere in between focuses on Christ. To live is Christ. To die is to gain Christ. And for the sake of such gain, namely the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus as one's own Lord, all else is merely refuse. Thus, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with all of the readers of this letter. Friends, may we all come to know Christ in this way, that each of us may say to ourselves, to live is Christ. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, all glory goes to you. We pray that that would be true in each and every one of our lives. Lord, we pray that we could all say for ourselves that to live is Christ, to die is gain, that our lives may be found in you and in you alone. Lord, help us to live faithfully. Help us to bear witness to you in this world as you send us out from this place. And in all things, may we put our trust and our hope and our faith in you as we live. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.